0: So, the Lord must want us all to pay careful attention to the Psalms after what was preached this morning in Psalm 12. We're going to backtrack a little bit this morning and go into Psalm 9. So, if you want to get your Bible ready, we're going to follow through. Actually, from my perspective, going to be the first in a four-part series from Psalm 9 and 10. And uh, it's part of our overall series, Psalms, Certain Truth for Uncertain Times, And this four-part series is going to be entitled Defending the Oppressed. Defending the Oppressed. This is really a critical title, and you'll see why we've entitled it the way that we have. The question is not whether or not you're going to be oppressed in your life. If you stand for Christ and you're committed to living for Him in this world, oppression is going to come your way. There's no doubt about that. No question about that whatsoever. And already, probably many of you have experienced some kind of oppression itself. There are two reasons why people seek biblical help and counsel. You're probably well aware of the fact that Scripture addresses your sin and your culpability before God because of your sin. In fact, the Bible teaches you of the importance of confession and repentance because of your sin Confession and repentance is critical to salvation, that is, coming to Christ, but confession and repentance is also critical after salvation for uh, the personal sins that you have in walking with God, your Father. Prior to salvation, God is your judge. After salvation, God becomes your Father, and you don't want sin to mar that relationship. That's the reason why confession and repentance is so critical. It tells you that it tells you of forgiveness that you can have in Christ, where He became the substitute for your punishment by His atoning work on the cross, releasing you of your culpability. But Christ's redemptive work brings you life. That's a marvelous truth. So we know that about personal sin. But what about personal suffering? What about that? How important? is your personal suffering to God. Does Scripture offer you help when you're suffering unjustly? Now, sometimes there are things that we do that are wrong things in this world, right? And we suffer for it. Is that a credit to us? No, it's not a credit to us whatsoever. The Apostle Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 2. There are some things that we do that are wrong, and as a result, we suffer for that. That's not to our credit. But oftentimes, as Christians, when we suffer for doing right, that's what we call unjust suffering, undeserved suffering. Does that happen? Oh, yes. Will it happen to Christians? Absolutely. Does God care when you're being oppressed unjustly? Listen to this. You know that there are 150 psalms in the entire book of Psalms. How many of them deal with sin? That is your personal sin. And how many of them deal with the issue of suffering? It may surprise you and even shock you to know that out of 150 psalms, only 30 of them deal with personal sin. But a whopping 100 of them speak to the issue of suffering and oppression. This is a major theme throughout the book of Psalms. Over a hundred Psalms speak of the issue of oppression. So it's a major theme throughout the book, the unjust oppression you go through in your life. Now over the next four messages, I'll be speaking on this theme, the next four messages that, I'm here in this pulpit (laughs) from Psalm nine and 10. Our Lord is defending the oppressed. So part one here is the first part, and that's going to be Psalm nine verses one through 10. Part two will be Psalm nine verses 11 through 20. Part three will be Psalm 10 verses one through 11. And part four will be Psalm chapter 10, verses 12 through 18. Now, you ask, why have you tied so closely together Psalm 9 and Psalm 10? Because that's what our author David does. Psalm 9 and 10, uh, Olaf, all the way to Tav in these two Psalms, in fact, There are some indicators that Psalm 9 and 10 were originally just one psalm, but later was divided into two, coming from the worship tradition and the later Israelite temple worship. Now, what is a Hebrew acrostic? Well, at the beginning of each section of these two psalms, the first word starts with a letter and a succeeding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. You can see this if you have a Legacy Standard Bible in fact they uh pointed out quite clearly there are some other translations that do that in the margins but for example verse 1 starts with the Hebrew letter aleph and verse 2 also starts with alphabet bet is beit that's verse 3 and 4 the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet is gimel that's um uh Verse 5, and then um, Daleth, which is the fourth letter, is left out. Not sure exactly why, but Daleth is left out uh, by inspiration of God. But then it jumps to the fifth letter, which is, hey, the enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, it says. And you can see this. And then the seventh verse begins with Vav. The 8th verse begins with Vav, the ninth verse begins with Vav, and the 10th verse begins with Vav. Wow, that's quite remarkable. So, as we said, there are many indications, and by the way, this extends all the way through chapter 10, all the way to the very end together originally into one psalm. So, David's using a Hebrew alphabet to organize his thoughts about how Yahweh should be praised for defending the oppressed. We should say, using the English alphabet, that David gives praise and glory to Yahweh for his protection and provision of the oppressed from A to Z. So that's, in a sense, what he's doing here in relationship to Psalm 9 and 10. Now, what ties these two Psalms together? Well, first, notice that Psalm 10 does not have a superscription which is unusual, especially for Book 1 of the Psalms. Book 1 consists of Psalm 1 all the way through verse or, uh, through uh, chapter 41. So it doesn't have a superscription. Second, both Psalms are connected because, as I've just pointed, Hebrew alphabet where Psalm 9 ends. Thirdly, both Psalms have common phrases and terminology that are unique to these two th- psalms, in indicating that the, the same author and the same subject, in fact, the theme is the same in both. Fourth, both psalms end with a prayer against oppressors and God's judgment upon them. And fifth, Psalm 9 has an abrupt ending. At the end of Psalm 9, it says, Selah. Now, that doesn't occur at the end of a psalm. It always occurs in the middle of a psalm, but it doesn't occur at the end. But this psalm does. So it's no doubt that these two psalms being closely tied together and um, originally, and this is especially true since they are praise to your name, O Most High, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. "'For you have maintained my justice and my cause. "'You have sat on the throne judging righteously. "'You have rebuked the nations. "'You have made the wicked perish. "'You have blotted out their name forever and ever. "'The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, "'and you have uprooted the cities. "'The very memory of them has perished. "'But Yahweh abides forever. "'He has established his throne for judgment.' And he will judge the world in righteousness and he will render justice for the peoples with equity. Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. And those who know your name will put their trust in you for you, Yahweh, not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 9, it's very obvious begins with an uplifting message to the afflicted that the Lord judges the oppressor. Our Lord is worthy of the highest praise because he executes his judgment and his wrath upon the wicked that afflict the righteous. David exclaims the Lord in this particular case is actually his champion, his champion. Now, I want you to notice, first, the superscription under the label here in Psalm 9. It says, for the choir director, Almuth Laban, a Psalm of David. Now, the first phrase for the choir director indicates that this was a regular psalm for corporate worship in set to the death of a son, set to the death of a son. Now, what does that mean? Well, apparently, this particular psalm was set to a song or a melody titled, The Death of a Son. Apparently, that was the case. This could refer to the occasion where David's son, Absalom, conducted a conspiracy to overthrow David as king, but failed and died. You can read about that in 2 Samuel Uh, chapter 16 all the way through chapter 19. David loved his son dearly. But when Absalom mounted a serious challenge to David's throne as a God-ordained king of Israel, this was open rebellion, not just against David. David recognized this as open rebellion against God. The Septuagint translates it concerning the secrets of a son. So it was certainly true that Absalom conducted a secret conspiracy against his father, David, until he executed it. Then it was exposed and judged. And then the superscription ends with a clear description of the human author, which is a Psalm of David. So that grievous story of Absalom's wicked attempt to overthrow David and kill his own father could well be the background of this particular Psalm. And it's significant to say for sure Or it's difficult to say this for sure, but it seems to be set to the tune of an ancient melody, the death of a son. Now, life is difficult when wicked people unjustly afflict and abuse you. David understood that. But life is unbearable when the affliction comes from a close family member. Parents abuse children. Children seek to harm their parents. Husbands abuse wives. Wives seek to hurt their husbands. When abuse comes from a member of your own family, it's a damaging betrayal of trust that is very difficult to recover from. Familial abusive behavior wounds deeply and causes you to throw up huge walls of mistrust. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 19 illustrates this well by saying, a brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a citadel in other words once a brother has been offended all of a sudden the walls go up of mistrust all around and it's very very difficult for those walls to come down once that has occurred harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you do not contend with a man without cause If he has dealt you no harm, then three verses later, it says in Proverbs 3 and verse 33, the curse of Yahweh is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the abode of the righteous. God will judge those who intend to do harm to his people. He will judge them. Oppressed believers have to focus on the Lord as your deliverer. People are either potatoes or eggs when it comes to suffering. A potato goes into boiling water hard and comes out pliable, but an egg goes into boiling water soft and comes out hard. Wonder what you are, a potato or an egg? The difference for you in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, there are three important truths that demand your consideration. As your deliverer, your Lord, number one, deserves worship. That's chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. As your deliverer, your Lord, secondly, displays His wrath. That's chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. And thirdly, as your deliverer, your Lord destroys the wicked. That's chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. So let's take a look at the first of these. What is it that the Lord deserves worship? This is where David begins, even after the horrible death of his son. The pain of betrayal can quickly fog your thinking and stir deep. It happens; you lose sight of God and you begin to focus solely upon yourself. All of your thoughts swirl. I'm an abuse victim. I I am an abused person trying to be a survivor. You begin to allow your hardship and pain to completely redefine who you are and your whole identity is shaped by the horrible events of your affliction. You will quickly find that your culture will do everything it can to solidify that kind of thinking. It will focus your thoughts on your trauma. The culture will tell you to view yourself as a severely damaged person on a neurological level. The sympathetic nervous system is associated with fight or flight response, and the response of cortisol throughout the blood system occurs when somebody is going through a lot of stress or a lot of oppression. This significantly damages your central nervous system and neurological impulses making you put the brakes on the sympathetic nervous system so your body stops releasing stress chemicals and shifts towards relaxation, digestion, and neurological regeneration. Severe affliction can cause you to be fixated on your trauma. After David's son tried and almost succeeded, killing him. We don't find David turned in upon himself, worrying about his damaged neurology or dwelling upon his drama. Instead, he turns all of his emotional and mental passion towards praising the Lord. David's parasympathetic system did not calm down with yoga, hypnotism, wine, relaxation exercises, taking a vacation, or anti-anxiety anti-anxiety medications. He didn't do that. The circumstances of life, the events of life, and the people around me in life do not make me what I am, but reveal what I am. They reveal what I am. Verses 1 and 2 is key here. Verses 1 and 2 is key because... David opens these two Psalms with a strong declaration to give praise to the Lord. His mindfulness is fixed and focused. You can see David's mental resolution in the first two verses when he talks about the fact that I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exalted in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Four times he uses the phraseology, I will, not it will, that is dramatic event. It will, it will, it will, I will. What is your mental focus when you have suffered mistreatment? Well, for most people, the abuse victim's focus is going to be, I will dwell upon my mistreatment with all my heart. Where David says, I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my my heart. Most people say, I will rehearse my abuser's awful deeds. David says, I will recount your wondrous deeds. Abuse victims often will say, I will be sad and stress over my traumatic experiences. David says, I will be glad and exult in you. Victims say, I will allow, I will wallow in self-pity over my new identity as a victim. And David says, I will sing your praise, it's not upon himself, it is upon the Lord. His praise-filled declaration is upon divine character of Yahweh. And by using the name Yahweh, David is stressing the covenant-keeping God of Israel. So his divine nature is seen in his wondrous deeds, and in context, it is a reference to deeds especially in delivering the oppressed from their oppression. And all these wonders he has done, he is God most high. Now, if you were with us when we studied Psalm 8, it is a worshipful praise that limits and defines how a person exercises control over their dominion that God has given them. Without praise, rule becomes despotic. Psalm 8, Psalm nines praise defines the identity and mindfulness of the oppressed. Without praise, the afflicted will become self-absorbed. And in Psalm 9 is a warning for praiseless victims. David did not allow the mistreatment that he suffered at the hands of others to define him. What defined him was his worship of Yahweh. Spurgeon once commented, Sufferings is meant not only to burn out the dross, but to burn in the promises. To burn in the promises. So this next verses now contain promises that need to be burned in. So let's carry this thought into the next four verses. And now we want to talk about the second part of our psalm, which is the del- deliverer displays wrath. And why was David so motivated to praise Yahweh when he had been so horribly mistreated? Well, the simple answer is that David knew his Lord would bring judgment on his enemies and that he would do so in two ways. First, on a single level, passing judgment on personal oppressors. But secondly, David is much more cosmic in his view here on a state level, he'll do that, passing judgment on public oppressors. You'll discover in your life that our Lord's judgment is multi-layered. You may have a personal oppressor, and God will judge them, but he will also judge the state system of wickedness that your oppressor comes from, the mentality that advances that oppression. That type of evil is hinted at in Psalm 8 as dominionship without accountability and systemic in the world and national government agencies. Our Lord is constantly at work on a private level, but he's also at work on a very public level as well. One other thing that you need to note at this point, David begins his list of five reasons... This is in verses 3 through 10. Why the mistreated believer needs to take heart and persevere. Five reasons. Why the mistreated believer needs to take heart and persevere. The first two are in verses 3 through 6, and the next three are in verses 7 through 10. So the first one is that the Lord defeats the enemy of the righteous. Verses three and four, look at it carefully. At the top of David's always, always judges righteously. His enemies are turned back, meaning that they can no longer oppress David. They flee from David when they learn that justice is coming. And as they turn to run, they stumble like a massive rout on the battlefield. And when they fall, the Lord's judgment overtakes them and then they perish. That's the implication. In fact, verse 3 says it like this. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my justice, in verse 4, and my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. The mistreatment that they gave David was undeserved. It was unjust. The Lord has his eye on the righteous when they are mistreated. There's no mistake here. He is especially attentive to you when the wicked attack in Melania 27 and verse 2. When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, David says, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumble and fall. So David fully trusted the Lord to vindicate him when he was mistreated. But the question is, is that what you do? Do you fully trust? The cry for help that David gives to the Lord may be your cry. Psalm 140. Take your Bible and go over to Psalm 140 for a moment. Put a marker here in Psalm 9 and go over to 140, verse 1, where it says, Rescue me, O Yahweh, from evil men. Guard me from violent men who think up evil things in their hearts. They constantly stir up wars will maintain the cause for the afflicted and judgment for the needy. That's significant. This is the type of reassurance you need when you are unjustly mistreated. The Apostle Peter encourages early Christians who are being severely mistreated as well. So take your Bible and let's go over to First Peter Chapter 3. And we'll look at verse 13. Notice what Peter says to the early Christians who are being unjustly mistreated. He says, and who is there, 1 Peter 3, verse 13, and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, that's just kind of like a general proverb that Peter's saying. That is, most people will not harm you. That's generally true. It's not true all the time. But it's generally true. If you're always doing good things, people are not going to harm you. But then look at verse 14. But, and here's the exception. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, this is something where you're doing the right thing, but people are still going to harm you. But he says you are blessed. And do not fear their fear, and do not be troubled... He says, in fact, over in Luke 12, Jesus says, don't be fearful of he who destroys the body, but be fearful of him far more who can destroy both body and soul, right? Him, that is God. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your given account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. Now, I know this verse is used with a lot of apologetics classes, but really oftentimes when it's used for just general apologetic purposes, it's really stripped right out of context. Here, it's really talking about people who are suffering unjustly and they're willing to go through the suffering for righteousness sake. That's different. They're suffering unjustly, but they're willing to go through the suffering for righteousness sake. Eventually, the people that are oppressing them will say, why do you put up with this? Boom. All of a sudden, the doors swing wide open for the gospel. That's where the doors swing wide open. And now you have an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is deeply embedded within you. Wow. Wow. Verse sixteen: Having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame, and rather than for doing wrong. I cannot tell you how many Christians who have come to me for counseling I've had them memorize that verse. It is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing good rather than for doing the wrong thing. If you have a choice between the two. Wow, that's significant. The very definition of a righteous man is one who completely is fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. That's a righteous man. Now let's go back to Psalm 9. Look at verse 4. Where he says, for you have maintained my justice and my cause, and you have sat on the throne, judging righteously. So it's abundantly clear in this verse that when a believing man or woman, it literally says, you have maintained my right, or my, you have maintained justice and my cause. Now, how will the Lord accomplish this on your behalf? Well, by dealing out justice on your oppressors for their wicked abuse. Your Lord sits on his throne, always judging righteously, verse 4 says. As a king, David understood how human king could allow favoritism, leniency, and bias to cloud his judgment. But in this case, he acknowledges, here in verse 4, that this is never true of the Lord. He doesn't allow these things to affect his judgment. All of his judgments are spot on and fully just. So it vindicates David's righteous cause. So if you are being mistreated, it's imperative that you gain a view of your Lord sitting on his throne, righteously judging. He views your mistreatment and exhaustively understands your agony and pain. He fully comprehends the evil plans and the purposes of your attacker. But more than anything else, your Lord sees your innocence and supports your righteous cause. In this particular case, the righteous cause now is vindicated. The Lord's justice is, first and foremost, decisively personal. His love and His care for you extends into the personal details of judging your individual adversaries. However, the Lord does not stop there. His judgments also have international implications. He also dismals them. Verse 5 says, You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. This is the second of five reasons you need to take heart. Behind all anger and hatred of believers is a broad society-wide evil alliance. You've got to understand that. Christians are not conspiracy theorists, but we understand things that we cannot see. That there is an organized alliance of evil against all righteousness. That's out there. Nations and whole government systems can turn against believers. For example, churches and throw pastors in jail for violating Aurelian COVID restrictions. Implementing harsh governmental control in the name of science and health while not allowing anyone to question whether this is hard or political science. It became a means to control Christians and churches But this is only a small sample of what can and could already be happening in nations all around the world. There is a satanic undercurrent to all of this evil opposition, and it comes from that evil alliance. Once any nation and its government turns against God's righteous people, their judgment is sealed. That's what this says. Our Lord will judge these nations temporally, that is, during this age, and finally, at the age to come, just before the new heavens and new. We studied this earlier here in our class. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples meditate on in vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them, and he speaks to them in anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And what David could not do as king, Jesus Christ comes as the eternal king and fulfills. Wow. Go to Psalm 119, or excuse me, 110. Psalm 110. This is a major. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his anger. He will render justice among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will crush the head that is over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And you know, when we studied through the book of Revelation, let's go over to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, because this is a veiled reference to the end of times. Revelation 20 and verse 7. This is exactly what this is referring to at the end of time. It says, Revelation 20, verse 7, and when the thousand years were finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they come up of the saints, and the beloved city, and fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever." Go back to Psalm 9. So in verse 5, you can see this. In verse 5, there are three strong verbs, Psalm 9 and verse 5, to describe what the Lord does to those nations. You have rebuked them, he says. You have made them perish or destroy them, and you have blotted them out. Three strong verbs. The tense of each of these verbs emphasizes the Lord will judge and their judgment will be decisive. Three present perfect tenses. Their perishing or their destruction is caused by the Lord's action against them, and being blotted out means they are completely removed from existence, almost like the people in Noah's day. Genesis 6-7. Then look at verse 6. What is the fate of evil nations as a result of this judgment? They are completely finished. They are completely cut off and they lay in ruins forever. Even the knowledge of their cities have been removed. How many names of city do you remember from Noah's day? None. The head cities, but you won't remember any of the names of the city because God's removed them all. This is what God will do. Big cities, what man considers to be unbelievably impressive cities. Los Angeles. Denver. We know them. But someday we won't even remember them. So the Lord goes even further by stating that even the memory of them has been wiped away. That's what he will do. That's what verse 6 says. No one can recall their name anymore. It's one thing to be utterly destroyed, but it's another thing to be entirely forgotten. Wow. This is how the Lord's judgment is upon oppressive nations. Now, let's move to our last point here. First, the deliverer deserves worship. Secondly, the deliverer deserves wrath. But then, thirdly, we find out that the deliverer destroys the wicked. This is verses 7 through 10. Through 10 is that the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning these verses, is actually used four times in a row. This is very purposeful. It's the letter Vav. Vav is used at the beginning of verse 7. Vav is used at the beginning of verse 8. Vav is used at the beginning of verse 9. And Vav is used at the beginning of verse 10. Now, this is very unusual. It's possible that this serves to highlight and strongly emphasize the major theme of chapters 9 and 10. Because that is the idea of those four verses. It is precisely because of the Lord's justice and judgment that Yahweh has now revealed himself to be the righteous judge of the entire world. So, in verse 7 the lord determines final judgment verse 7 now this is the third reason dear oppressed lord determines final judgment verse 7 says the way abides forever he has established his throne for judgment and the word there for abide means to be seated it parallels the next hebrew word meaning to be established or secured While the powerful people and nations of oppressors are subjects of wrath and are utterly ruined by deliberate contrast, the Lord sits enthroned forever. This is what we call in the Hebrew language a habitual imperfect. His throne is established for all time in his sovereignty. That's an anthropomorphic way of saying that the Lord has the ultimate say, he's the final judge. Their oppression is limited by his power and is destined for destruction. His past acts of judgment confirm his sovereignty. Here in Psalm 10 and verse 16, David returns to this powerful idea and says this, Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations perish from his land. Speaking of a whole earth belongs to him. Psalm 89 And verse 14 further says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So the third reason here is that the Lord determines final judgment, that you need to take heart. The fourth reason is that the Lord decisively renders justice. The verbs used in verse 8, are all future tense. That's significant. Pointing to the fact that Yahweh Yahweh will judge the world in righteousness through his rule, and by doing so, he will. Psalm 96 and verse 13. It speaks of the trees of the forest will sing for joy before Yahweh for his coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So there is an eschatological aspect to the Lord's judgment on angry and the violent who oppress. Later on, two Psalms later, Psalm 98 says, let the sea roar, let the rivers clap, let the mountains sing. Then in verse 9, it says, before Yahweh, for He is coming to judge the earth, He will judge the world with righteousness and His people with equity. You see, all the creation stands ready and will burst with glee over the lords finally rectifying all injustice and abuse and then this is one of the major problems with critical race theory today i mean it does reveal one thing and that it does reveal that in the hearts of every man they know that massive injustices go on in this world it does reveal that but the way in which they seek to rectify that is not according to what yahweh says is according to what man says it's texts like these in the psalms that set eschatological stage for the Old Testament prophets as well as the book of Revelation. The end-time judgments now validates the causes of the righteous. Fifth and final reason why you need to take heart is because the Lord delivers the oppressed in verses 9 and 10. The fifth and final reason that you need to take heart is that the Lord delivers the oppressed. Verses 9 and 10 explain the effect of the coming judgment. Given the fact, fully judge and crush all oppressors, then you can run to Yahweh for safety and refuge. He will be a stronghold that is a strongly fortified defense for you during times of harsh treatment, and you can cry out to Him and plead with Him to intercede for you, knowing that His judgment will be final on those who harshly treat His righteous ones. He does not forsake anyone who seeks Him. Look carefully at the second half of verse 10. The verb here, Yahweh, have not forsaken, is an understatement. It means He will wonderfully deliver you. When it seems like the Lord has abandoned you, you must remember, and those who know him understand that um, that not to be true, that he has not abandoned you. So you must continue to make the Lord your refuge and then await his great and final. Well, let me close with this. John Bunyan says, "'Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience,' the slight of his power and the contempt of his love. And we found out in Psalm 9 verses 1 through 10 that our Lord judges and will judge such injustice, rape, jeering, slight, and contempt against his saints. This is a real hope for you when you face oppression. In the next message that we have, We'll get into verses 11 through 20 in Psalm 9. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for what we learn and the great hope and the heart that we can have in the face of oppression that you are. Help us, Father, as a response to that, because we have been so blessed, as the Apostle Peter says that we will go forth boldly, still proclaiming the truth of the gospel and maintain our stand firmly upon righteousness. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.